Welcome to church on this Memorial Sunday. Um, as Pastor Shem mentioned, we honor those who lay down their lives. And today, we are in a sense talking about the ultimate Memorial Day. Today and next Sunday, we are concluding our sermon series that we have been doing since the beginning of the fall. And these two messages that you're about to hear is the very foundation of Christian message. This Sunday, we will talk about the crucifixion of Jesus Christ as Becky just read it for us. And the next week, we'll talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Those events changes everything, our life and our death. So I pray that the Holy Spirit of God would only do the work that he can do as you open up God's word in our gathering this morning. In this plot that you just read, you just heard read it out loud, uh, there are two different groups of people. There is rejectors and there are rejected. There are more clearly rejectors and there is rejected. Uh, rejection hurts, doesn't it? When I say rejection hurts, Perhaps you've heard that in a romantic context, uh, whether it be uh, you're not receiving the love back or it be the marriage relationship. There's difficulty. Perhaps when I say rejection hurt, you hear more in terms of parental love. As a child, you're supposed to receive all the love from your parents, but you did not have that figure in your life and it deeply scarred you for your life. Or on the other side, as parents, you love your children, but their love for you somehow does not match your outpouring. That hurts. Or some of you might think of rejection hurts more in social terms. You desperately want to belong to a certain group of friends. You want to be the cool kids or what. Or maybe you're applying for a job but somehow it's not working out. It hurts. See, to the degree of your emotional proximity or the investment expectation you have, when it is not reciprocated, it hurts that much more. What we are about to talk about in the end, Jesus came to love us, to give everything for us, his life, and yet, those people whom he came to love completely reject him. Yet the way he responds to this rejection changed everything. What Jesus endured rejection is not just a rejection that you and I will ever have to endure, but what he endured, you will soon see that even endures the rejection from his father at the foot of the cross. He was willing to go that far to love you and to redeem you. And we'll talk about why that changes us. Uh, so I pray that those of you who feel like so alone, feel so unworthy, unloved, I pray that this Holy Spirit will strangely warm your heart today, knowing that you're infinitely loved at the cost of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Three things that we'll talk about more quickly. Two things, and third, we'll talk about how that reality changes us. First, we'll look at those rejectors. We'll see rejected Jesus by those rejectors. And secondly, we will see how Jesus responded to those rejections. So rejected Jesus and response 
from the Jesus of those rejection, and lastly, how that actually changes us. When I say it's life-changing and game-changer, it does change us completely. So let's dive in. Up to now, as you have been talking about, you have heard it many times that Jesus constantly about against the religious leaders, whether it be Pharisees, Sadducees, whether it be scribe, the interpreter of the law. But today's message is a little different because now Jesus is not necessarily about against religious leaders, but he stands before the political leaders. And there are some fascinating things going on that he will be even rejected there and that. So when you look at verse 15:1, how does this section begin? Very early in the morning, the chief priests, elders, teachers of the law, whole Sanhedrin made their plan. So they bound Jesus, led him, and handed him over to Pilate. All those religious leaders collectively say, we don't like this guy, Jesus. We're going to hand him over to Pilate. And who is Pilate that we are talking about here? Because we are going to look at various characters in the plot. Pilate was a Roman prefect, which is equivalent. It's hard to equate to modern terms, but you can kind of understand it's governors of the governors. You can say he was also CFO, chief finance officer, chief tax collector, chief judge. In short, he was a very powerful man. But this powerful man religiously collaborate and bring Jesus to him. And somehow you saw in verse 2 all the way down, he's pretty reluctant to actually crucify Jesus. In verse 5, he says somehow Pilate was amazed. He was even drawn to Jesus in one sense. Yet, how does Pilate react to this? Look verse 12 to 14. What shall I do then with the one you call the king of the Jews? Pilate asked him. Crucify him, they shouted. Why? What crime has he committed? asked the Pilate. But they shouted all the louder, crucify him. You know, this crowd did not have a case. When Pilate said, why? Why do we need to crucify him? They said, well, just to do it, crucify him. Shout all the reason louder. And every time, I mean, as a part of worship service church just now, we recited Nicene Creed together. Remember that? We read that, which affirms our historical faith about triune God. And as, long, as well as Nicene Creed and Apostles Creed, every time we recite that, of course, I believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But what stands out so much to me every time I read, the both Apostles Creed and Nicene Creed recited is the most well-known creed that's been recited over millennia. And both of them singled out Pontius Pilate. Did you, do you remember that? Jesus, I believe in Jesus Christ, only son. He suffered under Pontius Pilate. We just recited that. And every time I read that, I'm thinking, that's kind of harsh. I mean, this poor guy didn't want to crucify Jesus in the end. But he kind of gave into peer pressure. And thousands upon thousands of years, thousands of years later, Christians remember this guy. Well, but more and more I thought about it, it's sadly justified. Look, why does Pilate crucify him? Verse 15, what does it say? Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Pilate was a political leader who was desperate for his approval rating. He would do anything to people please. And ironically, we are about to walk through a few other characters in this plot. 
Sadly, ironically, unfortunately, I identified with the pilot. What I mean by that? Uh, somehow, growing up, somehow, someway, I've often found myself in a leadership position, whether it be just regular in school setting, seminary, or post-career life as a pastor. And we all have a different leadership style. Not that I'm a political leader like Pilot here, but I tended to be a leader like Pilot. I have my own conviction. I have my own opinion. But as soon as there's pushback, I'm more like, okay, just give them what they want. And why do I do that? Because my leaders say, okay, do whatever you want. I tend to be like that. It's because in the end, I don't want to be rejected. I want to have people, please, so that they are happy with me. As long as they are happy with me, oh, I'm good. So even though I might have an opinion and things like that, often like, oh, just do whatever you want. And what about you? Even Pilate, the situation may differ a little bit, but I related my temperament with this guy because I can be like Pilate. Uh, he had a conviction, yet he buckled and yields, and history remembers him as the guy who handed over Jesus to be crucified. Teenagers, youths, I'm glad you're joining us today. For some of you, this is not just a people-pleasing, peer pressure. It's not an abstract concept to you. Are you buying into peer pressure to be a certain way as you go about your life by the desires of your friends at the school? Some of you, this is a very real thing. You want to be desperately, you want to be accepted by those others. You tend to be like, okay, I'll just do whatever you want. In a Broadway musical, Hamilton, perhaps some of you have seen that, in that musical, Aaron Burr, vice president at one time, is depicted as a master of people-pleasing skill. Um, Hamilton, the bull-headed, ambitious guy, approached Aaron Burr. Hey, Senator, how can I be as successful as you are? And then Aaron Burr says, I'm not going to rap, no worries. I cannot do that. <laughs> I'm not as cool. <laughs> as he says, hey, this Aaron Burr says, hey, you want to get ahead? Talk less, smile more. He goes on by saying, don't let them know what you're against or what you're for. And Hamilton's like, you're not serious, are you? And he goes on. Though it's hard to admit, most of us just adapt like a chameleon without even having our own conviction and ground. We are so hungry for human approval. We are desperate for our own approval rating. The problem is people-pleasing only wins us superficial acceptance, superficial approval. When we adapt our belief, desires, conviction, and practices to get most smiles, likes, or amens, no one will really know who we are. And most importantly, no one will really know whose we are. To whom do you really belong? Are you here to just people please? It's sometimes okay to say no. In Christ, we are freed for something far greater, more fulfilling than people pleasing. Pilate clearly didn't get the lesson. God, even though he was drawn to Jesus, he was amazed at Jesus, Jesus was only abstract to him. What was concrete to him was the loud voice of crucify him. And history remembers that, guys, as a master people pleaser. No one really knows what happened to Pontius Pilate after that. History blurred. Some believe he might have killed himself. We don't know. I don't know how he finished his life. But that's not the life that you and I are called to live. Secondly, there's also another person, another people, who has a plot stake in crucifying Jesus. Look for 6 and 7. 
Now it was a custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionist who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked the pilot to do for them what he usually did. Now, second group of people in the plot is the crowd. Perhaps you might not relate too much to the pilot, but perhaps you might relate to Barabbas here. Here, crowd is choosing Barabbas over Jesus. If, you, if I ask you, who would you rather have, Jesus or Barabbas? You would, of course, say, I want Jesus. But I want to press into that, really. Because I think there are many of us actually might pick Barabbas. You're like, no, no way. Well, let me press in here a little bit. Who was Barabbas? Here, Mark records him as among the insurrectionists. The word translated as insurrectionist has a wide range of it. It refers from general riot to the major insurrection, like a coup. Matthew 27, 16 describes Barabbas as a notorious prisoner. And John 9, 18, 40 describes him as a bandit, like a gang member. So Barabbas was a grotesque form of Messiah, actually, Israelite wanted. He was a leading zealot. It means he was a political activist who would even murder or do anything to get whatever they wanted. So in a twisted thinking of some, Barabbas was a patriot. He is violent, narcissistic, crazy. The one who did anything to get whatever he wanted was the man that Jews put their hope in. I would rather have Barabbas. Jesus in action and silence, meekness, frustrated the crowd. Oh, I want that man. He is my patriot. He'll give me whatever I want. This crazy murderer, narcissist. Who do you put your functional hope for someone to carry your soul and hopes out, church? People chose charismatic, narcissistic, lawlessness, instead of humble humility, righteousness. They chose violence instead of the law, war instead of peace. Jesus was too lukewarm for them. Jesus was too wish-wash for them. They were like, ooh, I want that leader to be my captain. But I genuinely wonder how many of us will actually, if there were two together, will actually confuse Barabbas, says to your Savior, not Jesus. Perhaps some of us are like the crowd here today. Or there's also a third group here, the soldiers. Read verse 16 and 17. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. This cohort of soldiers expected to be about 500, 600. And if you look at verse 19, 20, again and again they struck him with, on the head with a staff and spit on him, falling on their knees. They paid homage to him. They mocked him. See, you can understand soldiers in a sense like, uh, I mean, they are in the end under the rank. So they got to obey the order, right? But they blindly just obey the order and just lynch this innocent man. Roman soldiers has no vested interest in who really Jesus was. They just participate blindfoldedly to this absolute injustice. Perhaps some of them are following orders, some of them are just blindly following. One commentator puts it this way, because savagery begets savagery. It is like blood in the ocean sending sharks into feeding frenzy. Blood begets blood. When you get angry, you get more angry by the fact that you're angry. 
they just want to release their anger outburst and lynch this guy. You know, people say what people like to watch the most? It says, they say it's a 3F, fight, fire, flood. It's all something that has to do with destruction. They just all blindfoldedly participating in crucifixion of Jesus. What is Mark trying to show us here, church? In the end, we all have a stake in putting Jesus on the cross. It was not just Adam and Eve's pride. It was not just Judah's betrayal or Peter's denial. It was not just Pilate's people-pleasing temperament. It was not just crowd's mistwisted expectation of a leader. And it was not just soldiers' brutality. It was you and I sin, ultimately, that all of us led Jesus. We have collectively, individually, all rejected our Savior. Now, how do you respond when someone rejects you? I'm like, forget you. I don't like you either. <laughs> That's me. But is that how Jesus responded? In, as he receives all the rejection from his close friends to his enemy, everybody rejects him. How does Jesus respond to his rejection? This will change your life. Look, verse 3, in the end, Jesus goes to the cross and he says, At noon, darkness came over the whole land until, there, until 3 in the afternoon. And at 3 in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did you notice here Jesus doesn't cry out, Pilot, Pilot, why have you forsaken me? In the end, you liked me, you wanted me. Why did you forsake me? No. Jesus said, soldiers, why have you forsaken me? Peter's and Judas, why have you forsaken me? But Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To Jesus, God was not an abstract. When you call somebody my, I mean, that's my man, that's my woman, that's my wife. It denotes the sign of intimacy. And Jesus has known his Father throughout all eternity, which means there's no beginning and no end. Perfectly secure love. That's been breached at this scene. All the human rejection, Jesus took you to the composer. It's okay. But at the Father's rejection, he staggers him. He cripples him. He cried, Jesus did not die in composure. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I, I, I don't know whether I'll fully ever understand the depth of what Jesus has gone through for that. Church, do you know the power of presence and power of absence? For Jesus to endure the absence of the Father, loving best Father, after all eternity. I don't think I can ever un- understand that. When I was third grade, I, it's hard to show, but I broke my arm. So my left arm was kind of twisted a weird way. It didn't heal properly. I broke my arm as an understatement. I shredded a bone between these two joints. So it required major surgery. I was hospitalized over two months. And when I went in the surgery room, somehow those seven, eight doctors who were gathered there decided to do local anesthesia. Not, they did not put me in sleep. But they made a mistake they meant to cover my eyes. For the way they covered it, I was able to peep through what was happening. Big mistake. They are trying to hold my arm down. I see the drill going in. I had like eight, nine pins in my elbow. I see drill going in, blood coming out. I'm screaming. Ma! Going crazy for two hours. I was traumatized by that. 
I came out of surgery. The first thing I saw, it strangely healed me from the trauma, was my mom just, there was, her head was just buried. She couldn't take it anymore. The first thing I saw was my dad's eyes. He looked at me as if, I'm hurting with you. I'm hurting for you. I wish I were there instead of you. Later, mom told me dad was about to burst into surgery and have a war with those doctors because I was screaming for three hours. What if I came out of the surgery room, but there's no one there? My dad didn't even care. I was like, oh, good job. I was like, but don't you know what I've been through? Church, when Jesus went in for the cosmic surgery, father turned his back. Father wasn't there. Jesus, that crippled him. Do you know what that shows? The power of the cross, when we think about that. Cross might not prove the power itself of God, but you can ever deny how much Jesus has loved you to endure that kind of suffering. He stood there, took that, even rejection from his father for us. When all you feel is rejection, our Lord and Savior loved you to death. When all ran away from him, Jesus stood still, crying out, my God, why have you forsaken me for love? And that's a game changer. Why is the game changer? How does that change us? Verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. That was it. He commits his soul to Father. In John 19.30, writes this, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. Do you know what that means? It's a perfect tense in John 19.30. That means it has been and it forever will be finished. You are no longer defined by your sins. You are no longer defined by how many rejections you have received in your life. You are no longer defined by how many times you have failed him. Now, you are forever a child of God. Jesus endured cosmic rejection so that when all we feel is rejection, you are still welcomed in his presence. How do I know that we are welcomed? Look, verse 38. The curtain the temple was torn into from top to bottom. That curtain is nothing like curtain here, like, like flimsy veil. It's like a thick as wall that separated common people from the presence of God, holy of holies. But the wall has been torn down. Now we have free access. That's in a sense, curtain torn into it, saying, no matter what you're going through in your life, our God the Father will always be there for you thick and thin. And that will change you from up and down. How does that change us today? When your heart continues to condemn you, you failed him today. You'll continue to sin. You'll never get over it. Might as well, you give up. No, a thousand times you have failed him. Jesus saying, it has been and it forever will be finished. I love you regardless. I love you not based in the depth of your repentance, but based on the depth of my boundless love for you at the cross. That liberates us. That's the greatest antidote and cure for your insecurity, for your people-pleasing temperament. And guess what Mark does here in this text? This verse, I think, is the most important. Every preacher is hyperbole, but I mean that. I think this is the most important verse in the book of Mark. Do you know what happened? Mark shows the first person who is completely changed by that. Most unlikely candidate. Look, verse 39. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how Jesus died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. 
centurion, that means the one who leads 80 to 100 century, like 100 soldiers. He was, in a sense, charged of leading Jesus, torture, mocking, crucifixion. And he is the first person. Nobody in the book of Mark, no human mouth has ever declared Jesus as the Son of God. Mark has reserved all the way. This Son of God was only written in verse 1, chapter 1. This is about Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And out of all people, not Peter, not any disciples, finally, as this Roman centurion behold how Jesus died, perhaps even point of death, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Somehow Roman centurion confessed, that is the Son of God. Do you know why this is so incredible? Because he was the persecutor, mocker of Jesus. Not only that, every Roman coin at the time had inscribed that saying, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. In other words, the only people Roman soldiers attribute as son of God were the Caesars. But soldiers saying, my no longer primary identity is in Caesar. I belong to the son of God, Jesus Christ. He's completely changed upside down. I, can, I don't think I can explain what took place at that time. One way to say it, it's a divine act of God that changes human heart. Just like God changed the callous chief persecutor Saul to become one of the most influential Christian Paul, God melts this centurion chief mocker to be the first confession. That is the Son of God. Humanly speaking, perhaps it was something beholding Jesus' death as a pastor, um, one of the things that I do and see are how people die. Um, so there are a few people I walk through their deathbed and whether it be reading, just singing together, whether anointing oil in them. But to this day, perhaps because modernization and development of medicine, I have not, perhaps some of you have seen, I have not seen anybody taking their last breath in front of me. Um, perhaps some of you might have, I don't know, maybe, I think very few of us, only if you're in medical field, you might see them more often. But when you see someone taking last breath, there's something extremely sacred about that. Even the most staunch atheist will seek the meaning of life. What is this all about? And somebody takes their last breath. Out of dust we are made, out of dust we shall return. And something about beholding the Savior of the world taking last breath snaps his heart. Church, um, just about 10 days ago, I think I would say, there is a well-known pastor named Tim Keller um, who took his last breath. He was the man that had deep influence from a distance in my life. On my doctoral dissertation, I wrote about him. I wrote about how to preach the various cultures in mind with the example of Tim Keller. And I read so many sermons and just about all the major publications that he had that I literally won't be here today without his influence in my life, being in Northeast and all. He was diagnosed with the pancreatic four stage cancer about three years ago. And during that cancer, this is what he wrote. He said, I have stage four pancreatic cancer, but it is endlessly comforting to have a God who is both infinitely more wise and more loving than I am. He has plenty of good reasons for everything he does and allows that I cannot know. And therein is my hope and strength. He said he cried a lot. 
And he still believes in life and death. My hope is in my loving God. He knows he'll never be rejected. And just a couple days before his death, this is how he prayed. His son wrote that. This is how Tim Keller prayed. He says, I'm thankful for all the people who prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given me. But I am ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. How did the TK die, in a sense, better than Jesus Christ? Jesus Christ lost all the composers. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Tim Keller didn't like that. Send me home. I can't wait to see you. Because what Jesus Christ's death endures is completely categorically different death than Tim Keller ever faced or you and I will ever face. Jesus Christ endured cosmic rejection so that you and I will never have to fear that kind of rejection. Our Father forsook Jesus Christ so that when you and I live and die, we will never ever have to worry about him turning his back on us. We can hope in him in life and death. Poet George Herbert once said, death used to be an executioner, but the gospel makes him just a gardener. Church, for Christians, Death doesn't bury Christians. It only plants us in the loving arms of our Father. In life and death, you can hope. Do you know why? Because our Savior Jesus endured this ultimate rejection that crippled him. That means you are no longer Pilate. You are no longer bound by those who people place to live your life. You are no longer lived to just please the God of money. No, you live to please our Savior, Jesus. You are no longer those crowd who said, I want Barabbas over Jesus. No, you say like the Roman centurion, this is Son of God. In him I live. In him I hope. Where is your primary hope today, church? This is Jesus whom we love and adore. And because he endured this cosmic death and love for us, we will never have to fear rejection. Perhaps those of you, rejection is the very thing that you are going through right now, death of a dream, challenges of your life. But I pray that you marinate your suffering and rejection at the foot of the cross. Who loved you to really see you and to love you. Loved you to love you even more. Now when Father sees you, he no longer sees how sinful you are, but he sees Jesus Christ in you and you believe in him. He died for you to make you lovely, and you are infinitely loved at the cost of our Savior's life. That's the Jesus whom we follow. Let's pray together. Oh God, we look to you today. God, I don't know whether I fully comprehend the depth of your agony you faced at the cross when you cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, you knew what was ahead of you, yet he still crippled you and staggered you. The mystery, wonder, the love, and the power of cross. Oh God, we live to understand and live to live that out in our lives. Oh God, thank you. I wish there's a better word to say than to say thank you, but my language falls short. For loving us, especially when our hearts condemn us endlessly, 
that we've failed you over and over. You said, it has been and now forever will be finished. We are no longer defined by our temperament, our sins, our failures, but we are defined by how much you have loved us. God, on this Memorial Day, remember the ultimate Memorial Day, how you set us free. Oh God, may the Spirit of God drive this reality into our hearts so that the way we live our lives will be changed forever. In your name we pray, amen.